This hearing will come to order. Uh, first of all, thank you for understanding the delay. The Senate is still expected to vote on one more in a three-vote series, so we'll be uh, tag-teaming in terms of making that vote once it is called. So I apologize for that, and thank you for waiting. Uh, welcome to the second hearing for the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy. I want to thank Senator Cardin for his continued uh, uh, efforts in this subcommittee and uh, support for holding this important hearing as well as his work as ranking member on the full committee. Today's hearing comes at a critical time. The United States and 11 nations in the Asia-Pacific are on the cusp of concluding perhaps the most consequential free trade agreement in history, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The potential economic benefits for the United States are enormous. According to the Congressional Research Service, total trade in goods between TPP member countries reach $1.6 trillion in 2014. That represents nearly 40% of all global trade. In my own state of Colorado, trade with countries involved in the TPP currently supports more than 260,000 jobs. Removing barriers to trade is vital to growing our economy. But TPP is more than just an economic agreement. It is a critical test of U.S. strategic leadership in the Asia-Pacific region, a region that will be integral to our economic and national security for generations to come. As stated in the 2015 National Security Strategy, sustaining our leadership depends on shaping an emerging global economic order that continues to reflect our interests and values. Despite its success, our rules-based system is now competing against alternative, less open models. But to meet this challenge, we must be strategic in the use of our economic strength to set new rules of the road, strengthen our partnerships, and promote inclusive development. Defense Secretary Ash Carter echoed that sentiment when he said on April 6th of this year that the TPP is as important to me as another aircraft carrier. But when the United States is absent, others rush to fill the vacuum with such alternative, less open models as the national security strategy diplomatically stated. So we cannot be surprised when a rising China fills that vacuum with policies and programs crafted from their own vision of what is beneficial for themselves and the region. China's establishment of the Asian Infrastructure and, and, Invest and Development Bank is the prime example. While on the face of it, the AIAB is a positive uh, response to, the address, to, to address the infrastructure challenges in the region, it is also the clearest evidence yet that the U.S. has a serious credibility gap in the Asia-Pacific region. The question before us then, do we want the United States or China writing the rules? It is clear that while our partners and allies in the region may welcome additional Chinese investment, they want more American leadership and more American standards. We know that the standards TPP and U.S. engagement brings include not only economic benefits, such as removal of tariff or non-tariff barriers, but fundamental American values, such as transparency, good governance, and respect for basic human rights. So I hope our witnesses today can address how U.S. economic statecraft in the Asia-Pacific reflects our values and cements our leadership in this critically important region. And with that, I will turn it over to Senator Cardin for his opening remarks. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, to Chairman Gardner, I want to thank him for his leadership on this subcommittee. I continue to look forward to working with him, and I think today's subject is one of great importance to us, the strategic implication of trade promotion and capacity building in the Asian Pacific region. Uh, I want to uh, underscore the points that our chairman made. The IMF projects that in the next five years, we're going to see a glo global economy growth of over $22 billion, trillion, and almost 50% of that is going to be in Asia. So we have a U.S. economic interest to make sure that we are engaged in Asia from the point of view of trade. It affects our U.S. manufacturers, producers, and farmers, and we know that they can compete 
as long as they have a level playing field. So part of our responsibility is to make sure that they have that level playing field. And when we take a look at most of the trade conditions in our trading partners, it's barriers in other countries that we have to get removed. Some of them are direct, such as tariffs. Others are a little bit more difficult, such as intellectual property. And some are even more difficult when we deal with issues such as labor laws or environmental laws or, or governance laws. But it's in our interest to economic interest to pursue those. It's also in our strategic interest. The alliances for security in Asia are critically important to the United States. And we know alliances are being made, and we want the United States to be have the strategic partners we need for US security interests. And there's an opportunity here to advance regional stability, which should be in all of our interest. Our involvement here gives us the opportunity to make it a safer place um, for people to live. Uh, uh, helping our U.S. Um, national interest. But to me, one of the key points is how we leverage this opportunity to advance good governance. Because good governance is a key challenge to all of the issues that we care about in that region on stability and values. And uh, as one of our witnesses on today's panel recently said, Tom Malinowski, that TPP offers the best hope of giving the Vietnamese people the space to pursue their rights. I couldn't agree with Mr. Malinowski more. It's critically important that as we look at these alliances for economic reasons, where we're allowing our markets to be opened to countries that are challenged in good governance, that we do everything to make it clear that they must pursue and enforce internationally recognized human rights. They must have a strategy to come that corruption that includes an independent judiciary and independent prosecutors, the funds necessary to operate that, the laws necessary to enforce any corruption, the transparency that becomes critically important in dealing with anti-corruption, and that they have the labor commitments to provide labor protection for their population, environmental laws, and just as importantly, that within the trade agreement itself, there's enforcement so that we have learned the lessons from past agreements and we have a way to make sure that the commitments made under the spotlight of negotiating a trade agreement, in fact, will be carried out after that agreement has been ratified. TPP presents a particular challenge for us. When you're dealing with Vietnam, I've been to Vietnam, it's a country that offers tremendous opportunity for the United States. It's a country, though, that does not have a tradition of protecting its workers. There's really no right to, to join a union. We have to make sure that those rights exist and are, are real as a result of what we are doing in TPP. Malaysia, as you know, is a tier three trafficking country. We've got to make sure that those issues are corrected and that there's a path forward that is enforceable and workable. Brunei has its own challenges on recognizing international human rights. So there are countries there that have a history that gives us pause to say, look, moving forward, we have to make sure that we really do have the wherewithal to make the type of progress that we know is necessary. And then the challenge of capacity building and the way that we use our development assistance. That's a critical factor that has to be reevaluated as we move forward in our trade relations with Asia. The U.S. strategic challenges are clear. There are other trade initiatives in the region. We have to be mindful about that. We have free trade agreements among many countries in Asia that obviously affects the ability of the United States to gain market share. 
and influence. And of course, there's the regional comprehensive economic partnership that includes not only the Asian nations, but many of the other key players in that region, including China. So I welcome the discussion we're having today. Uh, I think it's a critically important subject, and I think that as a result, we can have a better understanding as to why it's critically important for the United States to be actively engaged in the Asia region. Thank you, Senator Cardin. And now turning to our uh, distinguished panel, our first witness is the Honorable Tom Malinowski, the Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, a position he has held since April 2014. Previously from 2001, he was Washington Director for Human Rights Watch, a leading global organization dedicated to protecting human rights. From 1998 to 2001, he served as Senior Director on the National Security Council at the White House, where he oversaw the drafting of President Clinton's foreign policy, speeches, uh, and strategic communications efforts around the world. And from 1994, I almost said 48, I don't know where that came from. From 1994 to 1998, he was a speechwriter for Secretaries of State Warren Christopher and Madeleine Albright, and member of the policy planning staff at the Department of State. Welcome, Mr. Malinowski. After uh, your testimony, we'll hear from uh, Kurt Tong, but please, Mr. Malinowski. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, yeah, and I didn't get that job with Secretary of State George Marshall in 1948. <laughs> it's, it's hurt me ever since. Um, thank you uh, for the opportunity to testify, um, Senator Cardin, um, Senator Gardner. This is obviously a very, very timely topic given the, the low-key little debate we've been having <laughs> on this issue. Uh, in the last week. Um, so let me, let me offer some thoughts on, on TPP from my perspective. This is first and foremost obviously an economic agreement, but as you have suggested, it has huge strategic implications. For the first time in the Asia-Pacific, if TPP happens, we will have a group of nations that have consented to join their economic destinies together under commonly agreed enforceable rules with America at its center, and that is a big deal. The alternative to TPP is not less trade, because trade has been expanding with or without uh, trade agreements uh, with uh, all of its creative and admittedly disruptive consequences. Um, the alternative would be far less cooperation in shaping the rules of trade, including rules that protect labor rights and the environment. And whatever rules do develop will be shaped by somebody other than the United States. Now, my focus, obviously, is on how TPP can help us advance uh, values of human rights, democratic freedoms, labor rights. And it's not immediately obvious because this is a trade agreement. It's not a human rights treaty. And there are critics out there who have legitimate doubts. But I believe that it will help us um, greatly. Now, in making the argument, I I'm not going to suggest to you that trade somehow by itself leads to democracy and human rights. I think that's a simplistic argument we should be skeptical of. Um, Here's what I believe. Number one, to promote democracy and human rights and labor rights in the Asia Pacific effectively, we have to stand up for those values. We have to speak out. We have to use our voice. We have to use our leverage. We have to use our assistance. But number two, we also have to continue to lead in the region on matters of security and prosperity. Otherwise, governments in the region are not going to listen to us on these other issues we care about. In other words, we have to be principled but we also have to be present, and TPP does both. Number one, it will be a cornerstone of our strategic presence in the Asia Pacific. It will enable us to continue to play the leading role in shaping the region's institutions and norms for years to come. 
TPP is also principled. Labor rights objectives are built into the treaty and forcible like every other core commitment within it. In addition, we have leveraged the interest of countries to be part of TPP to advance a broader human rights agenda. For example, to press Malaysia to take stronger action against trafficking. Uh, Brunei's recent commitment to uh, sign the Convention Against Torture, which would not be happening absent TPP. Now, let me focus in particular on how this will work with respect to the country with some of the biggest human rights challenges among the TPP member countries, Vietnam. We've got absolutely no illusions about how far Vietnam still has to go. It is still a one-party state. It is still a country where many forms of dissent are prohibited uh, by law. But there is a profound debate going on within Vietnamese society and within the government about the future direction their country should take. And reformers within the government are using the prospect of membership in TPP as a way of winning the internal argument in favor of greater openness and freedom. Under the spotlight of TPP negotiations, Vietnam has released prisoners of conscience. Convictions for political offenses are way down from about 61 in 2013 to one or zero, depending on who you listen to this year, huge decline. Um, it has ratified human rights treaties, it has committed to reforming domestic laws, and it is consulting with us on how to do it. Right now in the Vietnamese National Assembly, there is a debate underway on introducing the right against self-incrimination into the criminal code, something that we are working with them on. Now, most dramatically, um, TPP requires freedom of association, the right to form independent trade unions for the very first time in that country's history. Now, breaking the Communist Party's monopoly on trade union organizing in Vietnam would be an absolute breakthrough. And Vietnam must make this reform or miss out on the benefits of TPP. Now, will this be enough? Will this guarantee Vietnam's transformation into a country that respects human rights? No, it will not. Nothing we can do will guarantee that. But the question we have before us is, will we be better off in pursuit of that goal if this process is allowed to continue with the passage of TPA, which preserves that prospect that gives us the leverage to keep Vietnam moving in, in this direction? Will Vietnam be better off if next year its workers have the right to form independent unions, if this debate about legal reform continues, if there are fewer political prisoners in jail? From where I sit, the answer is absolutely yes. And very few of these things would likely be happening if not for the prospect of TPP membership. I think we would be set back considerably if that prospect were taken away. So from my standpoint, as the person who has to go to Vietnam, negotiate improvements in human rights, TPA and TPP is not, and this is not a leap of faith. It is an instrument of leverage and I hope that the Congress will find a way to give us that leverage so that we can use it over the next few months to achieve the progress that we want to see. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Malinowski. Uh, next up, we have the Honorable Kurt Tong, who serves as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs at the Department of State, a position he has held since 2014, not 1948. 
Uh, before joining the Bureau, Mr. Tong served for three years as the Deputy Chief of Mission in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, prior to his time in Tokyo, he was the U.S. Ambassador for Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, managing all aspects of U.S. participation in APEC while concurrently serving uh, as the co Economic Coordinator for the State Department's Bureau of East Asia, Asian and Pacific Affairs, organizing bureau-wide efforts on economic policy. Mr. Tong has been an economic affairs diplomat for the State Department since 1990, including serving as Director for Asian Economic Affairs at the National Security Council from 2006 to 2008 and as Economic Minister Counselor in Seoul from 2003 to 2006. Prior to that, he was Counselor for Environment, Science and Health in Beijing and served as Deputy Treasury Attaché in Tokyo and as an Economic Officer in Manila. Welcome, Mr. Tong. Thank you for your testimony today. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, really appreciate this opportunity to testify. Um, Today, you've asked us to consider how the administration's work on trade promotion and capacity building supports our nation's broader Asia-Pacific strategy, and I look forward to addressing that. Um, as you know, economic policy engagement with the region is deep and expanding, covering many more issues and programs than we could possibly discuss fully to here today. Uh, this engagement aims at creating a regional economic system that is open, free, transparent, and fair thereby creating new opportunities for growth and jobs here at home, even as it strengthens our strategic presence overseas. Our work in this area supports American trade and investment interests by securing property rights, enforcing contracts, and fighting corruption. It also empowers citizens to hold governments accountable on protecting the environment and product safety. And as Assistant Secretary Malinowski explained, it aligns American leadership with the aspirations of ordinary people in the region and with the values that they admire. It's worthwhile to note that our most potent tool in all of these efforts is America's private sector presence in the region. And as you noted, uh, total trade in goods and services in the re with the region is at an all-time high, reaching over $1.6 trillion last year. And U.S. businesses remain the, the largest source of foreign investment in the region. But the U.S. government plays a critical role, including by training thousands of officials on issues vital to our interests, such as customs and trade facilitation, information technology connectivity, financial regula regulation, and the like. Mr. Chairman, concluding the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiation remains the single most important thing the United States can accomplish with the Asia-Pacific this year. The region is home to vibrant economies, some of our closest allies, and some of our most demanding challenges. Foreign policy and trade policy are closely linked. Trade issues cannot be separated from larger questions about America's global leadership and our global security. With the TPP, we are building a stable foundation for our trade and investment in the region. TPP unites 40% of global GDP in articulating the values that we, American people, want to see prevail. Values like protecting worker rights and the environment, ensuring transparency and regulatory processes, and enforcing laws fighting bribery and protecting intellectual property rights. TPP will also have a broad magnetic effect on the region beyond its current membership. In fact, we're already seeing that, encouraging more open, fair, and transparent policies among potential future TPP members. Mr. Chairman, despite the mixed results of last Friday's votes, in the House of Representatives, the administration is committed to working with Congress to see Trade Promotion Authority passed, and we are committed to concluding the TPP agreement as soon as possible. 
TPP is profoundly in the best interests of the American people. But the world will not wait for us. If we do not lead, we risk ceding leadership to countries that do not share our interests and values. Indeed, China and others have already reached agreements that disadvantage us. And they are negotiating more such agreements, which do not protect worker rights or environmental interests, do not adequately protect intellectual property rights or help maintain a free and open internet. And they certainly do not address unfair competition from state-owned enterprises. If these lower quality agreements become the standard for the fastest growing region of the world, it will put our firms and workers at a disadvantage, result in markets being carved up against us, remove us from, from supply chains, and cause our overall national strategic influence to be diminished. And Mr. Chairman, let me stress that this is an urgent matter. We need to act now. As economic power spreads more widely around the world, we need to face the fact that our opportunity to shape rules to our advantage as a nation may be limited in time and scope. Our weight in global economic affairs is challenged as the rest of the world becomes a middle-income economy. And we need to act now while we still have the leverage to succeed. Mr. Chairman, in my written testimony, I provided additional detail about other important matters, such as our critical engagement with ASEAN as it prepares to launch the ASEAN Economic Community this year. That work has great potential to benefit the people of ASEAN. And as the top investor in ASEAN, it has great potential for also for the United States. In fact, technical assistance on trade capacity building is undoubtedly among the wisest forms of investment that we can make. And I expect Mr. Foley to share uh, more ideas with you about that in a minute. Um, such work not only accelerates growth in developing economies, it also creates greater opportunities in our own economy even as it reinforces American values such as transparency, good governance, and fair play. Um, when I visit and speak with government officials around the world, regardless of which corner we're in, Southeast Asia, Central America, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, the top request that I consistently hear is for the, the United States invest more in teaching and sharing best practices on questions like improving customs facilitation, which can both spur trade and help stem corruption. And finally, another important priority, of course, for the administration, as well as for Congress, is our economic policy engagement with China. The upcoming strategic and economic dialogue is an important opportunity to make further progress, as are the ongoing negotiations toward concluding a bilateral investment treaty. So we look forward to support from Congress on all aspects of this high priority agenda, and thank you for your attention, and I look forward to your questions. Last but certainly not least, we have the Honorable Jason Foley, who serves as the Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Asia Bureau of the U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, USAID, uh, overseeing East Asia and the Pacific. Mr. Foley is a career member of the Senior Executive Service. Previously, Mr. Foley served as the Director of Strategic and Program Planning in the Bureau of Policy Planning and Learning. Mr. Foley has worked as the Budget Director for Immigration and Customs Enforcement the Director of Strategic Planning for the State Department and a Peace Corps volunteer in, uh, I'm not even sure where he was. Benin. Uh, Benin, very good. Uh, prior to his U.S. government service, Mr. Foley was a senior manager for a consultancy firm where he focused on financial sector reform issues in East Asia. Welcome, Mr. Foley. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for this opportunity to testify today on the role of USAID in trade promotion and capacity building in the region. It was previously mentioned, the region has experienced remarkable uh, growth and prosperity over the past three decades. 
and has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of extreme poverty. But in order for this growth to be sustainable, and if we continue to benefit the region and the United States, there are several development challenges that need to be addressed. The first, inequitable growth, which can lead uh, to a playing field uh, that's not level and also can exclude underprivileged and marginalized groups like women. And as Senator Card mentioned, the second key challenge is weak governance, which leads to ineffective and not well-informed laws and regulatory frameworks. And finally, inadequate social and environmental standards, which can lead to forced labor and environmental degradation. USAID is best positioned to address these development challenges through sustained U.S. leadership on trade. Specifically, the Trans-Pacific Partnership offers us, the agency, an unparalleled opportunity to help reduce poverty, improve human rights, and promote environmental safeguards in the region. I'll talk about a few examples of what we're doing to address these development challenges. To help create open and inclusive economies, USAID is working with ASEAN, for example, to one, improve the regulatory framework for trade and investment, and thus open markets for U.S. exports. Two, harmonize custom regulations that will lower the cost of doing business. And three, train small and medium-sized enterprises, including women entrepreneurs, provide them greater access to capital. To help strengthen governance, USAID is working with governments, civil society, and the private sector to strengthen the rule of law, increase transparency, and enable citizens to play an active voice. In Vietnam, for example, we are providing assistance to improve the rule of law and compliance with trade agreements. In Burma, we are working to increase land tenure security for smallholder farmers by supporting public participation in the development of a land use policy. In the Philippines, we're helping to make the country a more reliable trade and investment partner. And in Laos, we're supporting key legal reforms needed to fully implement trade commitments. To help establish adequate social and environmental safeguards, USAID is working to ensure that investments meet domestic and international standards for protecting the environment and workers' rights. For example, this week's Asia Clean Energy Forum in the Philippines USAID is bringing together U.S. and lower Mekong countries or businesses to explore sustainable and renewable energy development. Through the Tropical Forest Alliance 2020, which extends to over 400 global companies, USAID supports the government of Indonesia in its efforts to reduce commodity-driven tropical deforestation. And in Cambodia, we're supporting improving working conditions and workers' livelihoods and promoting safe labor migration, freedom of association, and labor dispute resolution. In conclusion, Mr. Chairman, East Asia has become a key driver of global economic prosperity. USAID has helped to make this growth more equitable and sustainable, but our continued success requires strong U.S. leadership on trade. For example, our best leverage to improve labor rights and ensure appropriate environmental safeguards comes from 21st century trade agreements such as the TPP. Appreciate the opportunity to testify today and look forward to your counsel and questions. Thank you, Mr. Foley, and uh, begin questions. And again, I apologize, I'll be leaving uh, when Senator Cardin returns to, to take the third vote and then return. Uh, Mr. Malinowski, you mentioned in your testimony uh, that uh, some of the reforms highlighted during your testimony wouldn't have happened 
without the prospect of the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the talks that are being held. What are you hearing now from our trade partners with the failure of the House uh, to move forward in a, in a meaningful way? All of us are hearing a tremendous amount of anxiety. Um, there is um, a sense of doubt in, among many of our partners uh, in the region um, about whether the United States is, not only about whether we are going to go through with TPP, but um, with respect to our overall posture in the Asia Pacific. And I think as a result of that doubt, my understanding is that the discussions over the specific provisions that we want to see in TPP on labor rights, on the environment, on all of the issues that people are rightly concerned about are essentially, um, you know, people are waiting to see how this debate turns out. Um, if there's no TPA, then these countries have far less um, reason to make the many times very painful and difficult choices we are asking them to make um, as a condition of, uh, of entry into TPP. They're only going to take those painful steps, politically painful in many cases, if they know that there is a realistic prospect at the end of the day that this is going to work out, and that is in doubt right now. And I do apologize. Uh, we are going to have to take a short recess so I can go vote before they close it out. Uh, when Senator Cardin returns, we can resume the hearing. But for now, this uh, committee will stand in recess and uh, we'll resume when I return, or Senator Cardin returns. Thank you. So with the... Um, un with the consent of Senator Gardner, I'm going to reconvene the subcommittee on East Asia and the Pacific for the purposes of questioning. Uh, I know Senator Gardner will be back as soon as he has a chance to vote uh, on the, the last of our roll call votes uh, this afternoon. There shouldn't be any further interruptions beyond that. And I apologize for not hearing the second two witnesses. Uh, but let me uh, at least start the discussion going uh, with Mr. Molinowski. And the, the other two, you're more than happy to, to, to uh, respond as well. I, I agree with you that we see progress being made in, on issues important to the United States uh, during these trade negotiations with the Trans-Pacific Partnership countries. Yes, they're making progress on um, not arresting people for uh, their conduct that previously would have been arrested. They are releasing people from prisons. They are showing some sign of legislative action. Uh, they're making certain commitments on moving forward with labor protections. They're dealing with some of the other issues that we have brought up. Uh, my question is that we sign an agreement and then it's much more difficult to get the continued interest of these countries. They've got what they want, the trade commitments. And enforcement is not easy. If it's not spelled out in specific detail under dispute settlement resolution procedures, good governance is very difficult to enforce. If you have a commitment to reduce tariffs, you know whether those tariffs are being collected or not collected. 
if you have a commitment that you won't require uh, corrupt activities in order to participate in government procurement, it's not as easy to demonstrate that American companies had an honest shot at those issues. So how do you recommend that we proceed to make sure that the type of progress that we've seen on good governance is only uh, is not only for the purposes of negotiating an agreement, but will be permanent changes made uh, to protect the way a country uh, deals uh, with its uh, citizens. Thank you, Senator Cardin. That is uh, the most important question. I would say several things. First of all, um, and maybe let's stick to Vietnam because it's. I think the most challenging and important example here. Some of the things that we are talking about um, have to happen before TPP enters into force with respect to Vietnam. So on um, freedom of association, they have to change the law and they have to change it before they get the benefits of the treaty. And we will know when they have changed the law. We, are, we have been engaged in intensive conversations with them about exactly what that needs to mean. So it's not just a slogan, freedom of association, but we're bearing down on the specific details. Um, then, as you say, they have to enforce the law. And um, that enforcement becomes subject to the same dispute settlement mechanisms as anything else, including the commercial aspects of the trade agreement. Enforcement, as you said, is still hard, even under those circumstances, as we've seen with other trade agreements. But will we be better off if we have the law changed and a provision in place to enforce it? I would argue, yes, much, much better off. Um, will we be better off if they continue down the path that they have started on in the last year under the spotlight of these negotiations? I would argue, yes. We will also have other leverage in the relationship. For example, Vietnam is very, very eager to see the United States lift the existing ban on lethal arms sales, which we have very partially lifted, but made clear that a full lift depends on significant progress on human rights. So this will happen in stages. We have multiple forms of leverage. We have a high degree of commitment across every agency of the US government to move Vietnam, to try to encourage them to move in the right direction. And there are many people within the Vietnamese system who also, for their own very good reasons of national interest, wish to build a more open political system. And there is a synergy between what we want and what they want. So I can't think of a better way. It's not perfect, but I can't think of another strategy that gives us a better chance of achieving our goals. And I appreciate the honesty of that answer. And it is true that there will be a dispute settlement provisions that will be included in, I hope, the trade agreement. At least that's the, if the TPA that passed the Senate and, and the House is ultimately signed, it's certainly in the language of passed by, in the language that they, they must in fact do that. The challenge I find with laws in countries that, ha that are ruled by a communist party is that you don't normally find the communist party written into their constitution or into their laws for that matter. 
And when you look at the constitutional protections, you look at this, the human rights that are embedded in their principles, they're not bad. But everything is subject to the Communist Party. And what concerns me is that if we have strong laws or laws that would enforce their commitments, that because of the way that a communist system is organized, it is subject to an authority that is not spelled out in statute. How do you overcome that hurdle? Uh, it will take time, of course. You have identified a central problem within Vietnam and other one-party states. But I, I, I have found in my experience in dealing with them that it is in many ways a legalistic society despite the problem that you have identified. So for example, when I have met with senior leaders in the Vietnamese government, including within their, essentially their secret police, and we talk about cases of political prisoners who have been arrested, they cite the law to me, and they are right on the law because the law in Vietnam does explicitly allow the government to arrest people for criticism of the Communist Party and other such so-called crimes. The law does explicitly forbid independent trade union organizing, so were they to stop a strike, they would be within the law. That was quick. And so if we can get changes in the law, we are not all the way there, but when we have that argument with them, and more importantly, when their own civil society has that argument with them, the law will be on the side of the angels, as against now when it is not on the side of the angels. So that is one step in what we are trying to achieve, but not the full step. That well, I, I would just um, urge us to be as clear as we can in the enforcement provisions in TPP, and I would urge you to talk not only with our trade partners here in the United States in the administration, but also with our trading partners. I must tell you, I was not encouraged, not encouraged, in talking to other TPP countries where governance is not an issue as to their lack of interest in the good governance provisions of a TPP agreement. They were much more concerned about a particular industry or one of their issues and or that wh whether we're going to get an agreement more so than the niceties of us worrying about good governance and human rights and anti-corruption, etc. I, I would just tell you uh, this is an incredible opportunity. It's going to be looked upon as the model moving forward. And if we don't get this right, it is a huge opportunity loss. And I don't want to put too much on your plate, but you're the point person in the administration that we look to that will raise these issues and make sure that our trade, our trade representatives impress upon how results have to be shown. Mr. Tong, if I might, I want to get on to one other issue, uh, and that has to do with other uh, trade initiatives in the region and what impact it has on the TPP and the U.S. involvement. We, we know that there's the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership in which the ASEAN countries are trying to, to uh, enter into an agreements with Australia, China, India, Japan, New Zealand, and South Korea. That would certainly be a pretty dynamic um, region if they can come to an agreement on, on trade. We also know that there are 
bilateral free trade agreements in the region. We know that all the countries are actively engaged beyond just the TPP, although we do understand there's a good focus right now on what's happening with TPP in that region. Uh, there's the ASEAN economic community, which is trying to become more significant on trade rules. Tell us where the United States currently stands as far as uh, our opportunities for strategic partnerships versus other activities that are taking place in that region and which we're not part of. Well, thank you for that question, and I, th I think it's a very astute one. The, um, as by way of background, the United States currently has 20 free trade agreement partners. In the past few years, there have been 200 agreed uh, such agreements reached just within the Asia Pacific that exclude the United States. So there, there are a lot of uh, activity out there. The, um, the, what I'd like to convey is a sense that over the past few years, you know, I've been working on this for a quarter century, over the past few years, the US has been the one setting the agenda. And the momentum has been building behind our initiative in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And what we risk if we don't maintain that momentum is dissipation of that momentum in the direction of, of others setting the agenda. So what happens to the United States? Well, there's the classic question about, about trade diversion to our disadvantage. If people are reaching tariff reduction agreements that exclude us, that does disadvantage the United States. Um, the more important question, I, I believe, is with respect to the non-tariff aspects. Because these agreements that are being reached among the nations of Asia um, characteristically do not have the, the kind of non-tariff provisions that, that a high-value-added, high-technology, sophisticated economy like the United States needs to see in order to fully benefit from participation in this region. And once those agreements are reached, the system gets, tends to get locked into place. And the expectation for what the rules of the road will be is, becomes lower. Uh, and the United States loses its leverage to change that agenda in a more sophisticated way that, that benefits our firms and our workers uh, by having these, these, these more complex and, frankly, invasive non-tariff measures, whether it's in, in labor rules or, or any of the other aspects of, the, of, uh, of these trade agreements. So really, we need to maintain uh, momentum and, and uh, behind the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, you mentioned the ASEAN economic community. That is an opportunity, and, and we want to support that because these are all de developing economies, uh, and their greater integration among themselves is less likely than some of these other agreements to result either in, in diversion to the detriment of the United States or a, a, uh, a low bar approach towards the non-tariff measures. And so what we're, we're doing is working with the ASEAN economic community to try and build up the non-tariff aspects of, the, of what they're attempting to accomplish, as well as help them implement uh, that agreement, because that will help our firms set up in a regional basis and, and, uh, and create more export opportunities for the United States. I have one follow-up question for you, if I might, Mr. Chairman. And, and that deals with China. In, in my conversations, in the region, including with China, you get the impression that China looks at TPP as an effort to uh, isolate China and to, for uh, particularly the United States, since it's the, the leader in the TPP, of trying to get an advantage over China. I, 
Uh, I try to do my best to assure them that that is not our desire, that we want to see China as a strong country. We want them to buy more of our products. We want to move forward with our commerce with China. Uh, in the meantime, China has reached out with certain trade arrangements with other countries, and they're involved in this regional cooperation. Uh, there's been some rumors that they may be interested in TPP. Can you uh, just share with us your view as to how you see China reacting to TPP and what opportunities do we have in the United States uh, in regards to China? Certainly. Um, a few years back, China definitely viewed the TPP as, as a, an aggressive American attempt to contain uh, their, their economic space uh, in, in the Asia-Pacific region. Their, their view of that has softened over time. And the reason for that is that they've come to understand better, not well enough yet, in my opinion, but better that the, the U.S. objectives for the region of, of having a, an open and fair system for trade and investment in the Asia-Pacific is something that over the long run would be uh, uh, something that China would value itself. A real issue is, is Chinese protectionism. Uh, even as China starts to realize that, that an open system outside its borders isn't such a bad thing, uh, China continues to take a very protectionist approach towards the regulation of its own economy. And therefore, when it reaches bilateral agreements, in particular with other countries, they tend to keep the bar very low, both in terms of the amount of, of, uh, of tariff relaxation as well as the non-tariff rules. And that, and again, that, you know, I'm repeating myself here, but, but locking the region into a set of low-quality uh, arrangements is to the detriment of the United States. And we, therefore, we need to maintain momentum behind our initiatives. If I may add to that, Senator Cardin, you mentioned um, some inklings of interest uh, within China and the TPP. I would just say from my standpoint, I would be very happy if China were interested in the TPP because then they would have to meet the freedom of association requirement. And that would be a very well, I hope thing. there's more than just freedom of association requirements. And, and many, many other Thank things. you very much for clarifying. <laughs> As the Assistant Secretary for Human Rights, oh, yeah, Democracy, right. and Labor, that's what I'm I sure you read all the principal heads. negotiating <laughs> objectives that are included in the TPA that we expect are going to be complied with in the TPP agreement. Indeed. Thank you. And thank you again for putting up with our vote schedule today. And I wanted to go back to Mr. Tong in terms of following up on one of the questions I asked Mr. Malinowski, and that was about the aftermath of the, the House vote this week. In your st statement, you mentioned, your opening testimony, you mentioned that foreign policy and trade policy are closely linked. Um, what are you hearing, what's the feedback you're receiving after uh, in the House aftermath of the vote? Well, I, I think um, Assistant Secretary Malinowski answered this accurately a moment ago in saying that the, the, the fundamental reaction is one of anxiety. Um, the, um, our 11 partners in the Trans-Pacific Partnership Endeavor uh, very much want us this to be a successful initiative. They have put a lot on the line politically, and they put enormous amount of effort into reaching uh, a high-quality agreement. And so they're anxious uh, and watching us very closely to see uh, if the United States can, can deliver on, on its promise of having the, uh, the capability of coming to closure and the, the Trade Promotion Authority being that, that capability. Trade Promotion Authority, as you know, is Congress telling the administration what to achieve in the agreement uh, in return for promising to, to consider that agreement as a whole uh, once it is reached. Not, not a promise to pass it, mm -hmm. just a promise to consider it. 
with with respect to the the region, if you think about the the uh, uh, the rebalance strategy, which I think both Congress and the administration have 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 internalized as an important uh, priority for the United States, there's there's a diplomatic aspect to it. A few years back, we would hear from the, from uh, friends across the Pacific constantly that we weren't showing up enough, and the United States has been showing up. Uh, we heard that, that they were very concerned and anxious about us maintaining our military presence. And we both maintained and augmented our military presence. And they have asked us to be more engaged in the region economically, not just in, not just in a material sense, but in the sense of shaping the rules of the road for how the Asia-Pacific economy works. Because they know, as was pointed out earlier, that only the United States has that unique commitment to actually emphasizing the long-term issues of fairness uh, and transparency and how uh, trade and investment takes place. So this is a, a fundamentally part of a piece in how the, how the United States is, expresses its, its, uh, its aspirations and its interests in the Asia-Pacific region. So we really can't um, be successful uh, in an overall sense without the economic piece. And thank you. I want to follow up, Mr. Foley, with you on that uh, engagement question. In your testimony, you stated that our continued engagement in the region will be critical for our own prosperity and security. Uh, USAID's trade capacity building work helps to ensure the region follows this trajectory and contributes to the type of global growth that lifts up the poorest of the poor, empowers the disenfranchised, and brings the rule of law where it's needed most. Uh, Mr. Tong mentioned the, the rebalance as well as part of that engagement. Uh, what percentage of the total would you estimate USAID currently spends on its trade capacity building efforts in the Asia Pacific region? Thank you for the question. Um, before we get into the specifics in terms of the portfolio, just to, to add on uh, previous comments on the rebalance and how important uh, these issues are of human rights and governance and um, improving the livelihoods of, of people out there, um, our role is to ensure, to help ensure that there's an appropriate balance within the rebalance, that these core issues are focused on and we do work in Vietnam in improving transparency and accountability. We do work in other countries, but what TPP and these type of trade uh, deals allow us to do is to shine that spotlight even further and actually get the support of the reformers in these governments that we're working with to, to push deeper. And so they provide us the opportunity to do so. Um, in terms of our overall uh, portfolio for uh, trade capacity and building. We work very closely with the State Department, with USTR, with Department of Commerce, and so we collectively look at what the needs are um, in these different uh, areas that we're working, either regionally that we do work through APAC or ASEAN, uh, in addition to bilaterally. And so we calibrate based on what the needs are. Uh, I don't, I can get you an exact percentage I don't have it off here. If you could give me that percentage, that would be fantastic. Just the estimate what we currently spend on uh, trade capacity building efforts in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, I think that's important to know as we talk about the rebalance and if we're actually focusing uh, the, the proper energy yeah. uh, to the rebalance or whether we need to re-energize the rebalance. Um, the countries in the region, uh, following up on that, the countries in the region where these challenges are most prominent, what, what are they? And what is USAID, uh, USAID's plan to address these challenges? 
the challenges imposed by in the region and when it comes to the trade challenges trade barriers that right. we talked about some of the work you're doing uh, what right. countries in the region face the most significant challenges and what are you doing right now so our work in APEC and ASEAN is the sort of the centerpiece of the of the regional trade uh, that we're doing that work in a number of our countries in Southeast Asia so Vietnam looking at Burma uh, looking at Cambodia and so we address most of our trade issues regionally through customs, uh, streamlining customs, single window through our ASEAN uh, programs and through APEC, ensuring that we reduce the cost of doing business in the region. Um, our bilateral work also supports our regional work, uh, and that deals more at the one-to-one um, -one U.S. government and the individual countries in areas like uh, improving uh, transparency, rule of law, such as we're doing in Vietnam. So they, we come at it regionally and we come at it bilaterally. As we negotiate the TPP and the opening that it creates, uh, are you planning on, is USAID planning on increasing uh, trade capacity building efforts in the region, the Asia Pacific region? And if so, to what extent? So that's what we're in discussions right now about with our interagency partners about what are the needs, particularly around labor rights, environmental safeguards, what are we doing already to support? What are we doing regionally, bilaterally? And then based on what those needs are, should the agreement pass, we will then be uh, determining what our role is within the interagency and then support is appropriate. Do you think uh, efforts to continue building out our trade capacity building efforts uh, within the region would be set back with the failure of uh, TPA? You know, I think that uh, my colleagues at State Bar could probably answer broadly diplomatically in terms of our programs. Uh, we're doing this work um, whether TPP passes or not. This is important work that we're doing in building trade capacity. Uh, so we continue to do it. Would it be helpful to have this? Absolutely. Uh, last year, continuing Mr. Foley, last year the Government Accountability Office produced an assessment of the agency's trade capacity building efforts and concluded, and I'll quote the report, the U.S. Agency for International Development's 2003 trade capacity building strategy does not directly guide TCB activities and parts of the strategy no longer reflect the current TCB environment. Have you responded in any way to the GAO study and what steps have you taken uh, to update TCB strategy? I don't know. I'll have to follow up and get back to you. If you get back to myself yeah. and uh, Senator Cardin, uh, that would be appreciated. Um, to Mr. I guess uh, my time is up. Uh, Senator Cardin, if you would uh, like anything. Uh, I have one more question. Yeah, please go ahead and we'll, we'll go back and forth. Yeah. Well, Mr. Foley, I'm going to follow up on the um, development assistance program and capacity building for trade. Uh, I must tell you, there are some who are pretty critical saying that our aid policies were developed or established for a developing world in Asia that has turned into an emerging world where you have economies that are getting more sophisticated and that we have not really changed our aid programs in Asia to reflect the current needs for trade capacity. Uh, there's also a concern as we rebalance to Asia that the total size of the foreign development assistance in that area is relatively small compared to the other regions. And therefore, you don't have the, the, the size going in. And whenever you try to redesign aid programs, you have political problems, not just within the agency, but within the countries we're dealing with. And so these are hard issues to change. But here we are talking about the most modern trade agreement, the largest trade agreement, 
in which a large part depends upon countries being capable of handling the commitments that they are making under this agreement. And if we have not focused our development assistance to make these modifications and changes in the country, then we're not going to succeed. So it seems to me that USAID has to take a pretty bold step here and be able to tell us how they plan to deal with the realities of the nations we're dealing with, particularly with, in TPP, but also beyond TPP, because the template here we expect will be used for other participants in TPP to have countries prepared to be capable of dealing with a modern trade agreement. It's a very good question, and it raises a, an issue that we grapple with um, in terms of our resources and, and how that's shaped. Uh, economic governance resources for us, as well as democracy and governance, they're sort of part of the discretionary pot, right? They're not earmarked, they're not directives, they're not part of the administration uh, identified initiatives. And so it's often hard to ensure that we have adequate levels to support what the needs are. And so we are continuing to look through, as budgets are being developed and implemented, how we can assure that we do have appropriate resources to support this very critical uh, set of issues that you've raised. Well, I'm glad I identified a problem. I, I, I'd, like to have a, I'd like to have some hope of an answer here. Uh, now, I really do think we, you know, we, we developed these policies for a developing world and developing countries, and there's been changes, somewhat dramatic changes. Vietnam today is not what it was 20 years ago. And uh, we, we need to be prepared to change our priorities to meet American needs. And um, I understand budgets are tight. Believe me, I'd like you to have a larger budget. I really would. But it does mean you have to make hard decisions. And if what you have said here today, this panel, that trade is critically important to America's strategic interests and economic interests, and this is a critical moment with the TPP negotiations taking place, then I think we all have to be working in the same direction. And therefore, I hope that you will come forward with some concrete ways that will give some of us confidence that we can vote for a TPP knowing that there will be the tools available so that, in fact, particularly the countries of challenge will have the ability to comply with the commitments that Congress expects will be included in this TPP. We're working on it, and we'll seek your counsel as we uh, put forth our plans. Thank you, thank you. As you can tell, I think both Senator Cardin and I continue to seek answers on how well we are doing and what our progress is in the rebalance, and that's why uh, I appreciated Senator Cardin's efforts uh, with with my office to make sure that we were able to include in the base bill of the State Department uh, operations authorization that we just did uh, last week uh, in the in the markup uh, that passed unanimously out of out of our committee, uh, we ask that very question: Are we doing enough when it comes to the rebalance? What resources have we focused, and what can we learn from where we are today with that uh, that focus? And keeping in line with that same question, to Mr. Tong, I'll turn to you. Uh, depending on how you measure it, an FY 2016 foreign operations request. Uh, the East Asia and Pacific Bureau is about 4% of that total, the fiscal year 2016 foreign operations, which basically makes it dead last amongst all of the bureaus for funding. Is that directing enough resources to make the rebalance uh, successful? 
The, uh, boy, I'm tempted to answer that question, but the... Um, we would encourage you to answer the question. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't work in the East Asia Bureau now, so I can't really speak to the adequacy of, of its budget. Uh, I will say that, that the challenges in the Asia Pacific are enormous. Um, the, certainly, having worked in that region uh, over, over the last 25 years, I've never felt flush in terms of the amount of resources available uh, in pursuing those objectives. The, um, uh, as, as for which region versus which budget, um, I, I'm not in a position to, to address that question. The, um, I would like to comment a bit on, on uh, what Senator Cardin brought up. Uh, there was a question about the relationship between trade capacity building and, and TPA, and I do think there's a linkage there, uh, it's a, if, if a subtle one, which is that trade capacity building activities will be more successful if they are tied to a specific uh, initiative such as, such as TPP. Um, I think there was also a question about bilateral versus regional approaches, and the regional approaches tend to be very efficient, um, whether through APEC or through ASEAN or through a TPP framework, because you have peer pressure uh, of, from the participating economies reinforcing one another as they move forward in their understanding about, about trade policy. And then finally, this question about middle income versus uh, how, to, how to be providing appropriate support to middle income countries versus those that are most in need of poverty alleviation. I do think there's a, there's a question there that needs to be looked at both, both in terms of trade policy, uh, but also in trade capacity building and, and our assistance programs. And I look forward to working uh, with US, USAID on that question. Thank you, Mr. Chong. Shifting to the, the, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, or AIIB, um, I think 56-some nations are now a, a part of the AIIB, including some of our closest allies. Um, there are people who are very concerned uh, about the transparency, accountability of the AIIB. Uh, talk about rules and governance remain unclear when it comes to the AIIB. But when the United States expressed uh, strong reservations, we had a number of allies that went ahead uh, to become a part of it. Why do you think they ultimately decided to join the AIB despite the reservations by the United States? Um, I think that the, the, uh, the nations that have, have volunteered to negotiate, it's still not yet launched, but negotiate the terms of the AIB uh, to get under Chinese leadership uh, have, have identified an opportunity for themselves to participate in something that which may provide additional funding uh, to them or with, with, in cooperation with them to the very important question of infrastructure financing in the Asia Pacific. Um, the U United States approach to this question uh, has been um, less clear than it should have been from, from the beginning. The president made a very clear statement on, on on our approach towards this, this uh, emerging institution in Brisbane last year, but it didn't get much public attention, and, and we should have amplified it more. The, the fundamental view uh, of the administration towards this, this, this organization, emerging organization, is that it both presents an opportunity as well as a challenge. There's an opportunity in that there may be more funding available to this question of infrastructure uh, financing, which is a you know, very legitimate uh, demand, uh, or concern that there be more, more funds available. The challenge is that the new, with any new institution, that it uh, do its business in a way that actually reinforces the best practices in the region uh, rather than undermines them. And so from the U.S. approach, we've been trying to communicate our, our concerns, questions, uh, cautions to the participants uh, in the initiative, both directly with China as, as the leader of the initiative as well as with other 
uh, participants. For example, when I was in Beijing a couple of weeks ago, I met with the Secretary General uh, of, the, of the, the design part of this institution to discuss through some of the ways that they're answering all of the concerns that are coming from the United States and other partners. And so we need to continue to engage uh, to, to express, as in, in our unique American leadership role, uh, as in a way custodians of the global financial system and the global development policy apparatus, that we really want this AIAB uh, organization to, to make a positive contribution. And so we'll continue to, to, to speak with them on this. The other thing that we need to keep in mind is that the amount of cash being brought to the problem by this new institution is just a supplement of existing organizations. And even with those, those existing organizations plus the AIAB, uh, their resources will fall far short of the actual demand uh, for infrastructure build out in the Asia Pacific region. And so the really, the more fundamental challenge is designing good projects and getting the private sector engaged, including the US private sector in, in, uh, in meeting this demand. And, and I think that's the interesting, interesting point that you make because talking about our unclear reaction, or I think as you said, it, it, we were less clear than we should have been in response to the AIIB, talking about the amount of investments that the AIIB will be making in terms of falling short of uh, real needs. Should the United States have been more assertive in its efforts to create a viable alternative to the AIIB? Should the administration have put forward a, a viable alternative? Or should we have uh, worked to, to improve our existing multilateral institutions like the Asian Development Bank? What, what should have been the response? We, we have been working with the Asian Development Bank and the World Bank uh, to uh, nudge them, um, encourage them to be more efficient and more effective in the infrastructure space. They, they have uh, other priorities as well in poverty alleviation and health and the like. Uh, and, their, and resources are finite uh, in, in these questions. Um, but through you, you identify a very important channel for us to express uh, our desires in this, which is the multilateral development banks. Another is our own is our own efforts through uh, the, the Exim Bank, OPIC, uh, the Trade and Development Agency, to help support uh, American business uh, and developing economies link up in, in creating uh, infrastructure solutions. And I think we, we just need to do, uh, I don't have a new game plan for you uh, or an alternative to the Chinese approach led by the United States, but rather I think we, we just need to do what we've been doing, do more of it and, and continue to try and do it better. Thank you, and uh, Senator Cardin, if you would like to jump in. Well, I, first, I, I have no further questions. I, I found this discussion to be very helpful, and I, I know we all share the same values of what we're trying to achieve. I just think that um, President Obama's committed to a rebalanced Asia. Senator Gardner is correct. I, I share a concern that we understand what that really means and whether we're devoting the adequate resources to it, because I think for a long time, East Asia and Pacific Bureau uh, did not get the same attention, same resources uh, in all of the different areas, including the attention of the political structure of America, including the size of its budget within the State Department, including the uh, programs under USAID, including some of the who received grants under the major um, initiatives. Uh, you look at the number of countries in Asia, uh, a rebalance to me means that we are going, because of the importance, because of the growth, that we are going to evaluate how we can do things more effectively in that region. 
Some of it means reallocating resources, but others means changing programs to, to meet the current needs. And clearly the Trans-Pacific Partnership is part of that strategy. And uh, I know we're, we're moving in that direction, but I do think it's important that we have a coordinated effort and that uh, Congress understand that, the American people understand that. Uh, thank you. And uh, we have another hearing that uh, we are going to be going to this afternoon, so uh, do appreciate the opportunity for uh, everyone to participate in this afternoon's hearing. Uh, and uh, with that, I think if there's no further business, we can conclude uh, this hearing. Uh, so thank you for your testimonies today. Thank you to the witnesses for appearing before us today and for providing us your testimony responses. Uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business this Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. We ask the witnesses to respond as promptly as possible. Your response will also be made part of the record. And with the thanks of this committee, the hearing is now adjourned. Thank you very much for your time and testimony today and your willingness to put up with our vote schedule. Committee is adjourned. <laughs>